You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Hi, I am Maria Varmazis, host of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast, and you're listening to T-Minus Overview. T-Minus. In this program, we'll feature some of the conversations from our daily podcast with the people who are forging the path in the new space era, from industry leaders, technology experts and pioneers, to educators, policymakers, research organizations, and more. On today's show, we're going to tackle the growing phenomenon of Earth observation. Yes, Big Brother is watching us via satellite, but what good are all those watchful satellites doing for us down here on terra firma? Well, in this episode, we're going to explore the Earth observation market and find out how many organizations are now using space to help solve problems here on Earth. Aravind Ravichandran runs an Earth observation consultancy firm called TerraWatch, and he spoke to N2K Vice President Brandon Karp about the recent rise of the Earth observation market and how much we all use it in our daily lives without even realizing it. So in the last year or so, we've seen increasing number of Earth observation satellites being launched. Each of them equipped with different sensors. Different sensors can is it's used for you know different purposes you know from a scientific point of view they can do something but then from an application standpoint each sensor is launched for a specific purpose you know the most obvious one being military reconnaissance satellites or you know thermal uh, infrared satellites that's more related to wildfire man- monitoring or it can be you know satellites that can see through clouds which is called the synthetic aperture radar or SAR satellite so all of those satellites are being launched, um, and the launches are not just done by government agencies. Um, a vast majority of them are actually by private companies or what we would call new space companies, companies that were formed in the last you know, five to ten years. So you know that's been a big trend. Also, the adoption of Earth observation uh, is happening. It's not, you know, Earth observation as a technology has been around for 50 years. You know, the first missions launched in the late 60s and early 70s, that's when Earth observation began. But then mainstream, the most successful mainstream Earth Observation app or application is uh, is the weather app that we use every day on our phones that we don't think about. But they include 80 to 90% of data for that application comes from space. But, you know, nobody talks about that. That's been the most mainstream application. But then in the last couple of years, we've seen increasing adoption of the imaging uh, satellites as well. So in relation to that most mainstream uh, adoption where you're talking about weather data, weather apps, most recently just saw an announcement from Tomorrow.io. They just announced uh, the first data from their radar satellite to gauge precipitation from space, which is kind of putting them on the same uh, level as you know JAXA, NOAA, uh, some of these um, um, nation-state level capabilities. Could you potentially talk a little bit about the, the business case for a private company collecting and delivering that type of data? Yeah. It is a very, very complicated market because weather, as you know, is a public good. You know, everybody takes it for granted. Right. We see it on TV. Uh, yeah. it's, you know, it's one Google search away. 
So people just assume that, you know, it's not a business because it's free or it's just there on your phone and you're not paying for it. So it's not a business. But then, you know what, uh, it is a business. One, from a data standpoint, you know, from a data standpoint, do we have more data to collect about our planet, uh, specifically of the atmosphere, that can influence better weather forecasting uh, around the world? Yes, there are a lot of data gaps. And if you, th- if you think of it geographically, there are large parts of the world that do not have access to good weather forecasts. You know, can be surprising for some, but that's the case. And also it's the same case with oceans, right? We are sending people uh, into the eye of the hurricane or closer to the eye of the hurricane. You know, Hurricane Hunter's uh, aircraft is what I'm talking about. And because we have no way of collecting data, there's only one satellite that does that. That's the NASA Global Precipitation Mission. And NASA also launched recently a couple of CubeSats called Tropics, also for that same purpose, to monitor hurricanes. And what tomorrow IO satellites give the opportunity is now we have radars. And as I mentioned, radars, they can see through clouds, meaning you can see through hurricanes and get data about, you know, what's happening in the core, which we can then transmit to the models to improve the weather forecast, right? So that's the first uh, business model where there's a gap. You know, you can monetize the data of the data gaps. And, you know, that's where private companies like Tomorrow IO come in, Inspire as well. Another private company that has launched um, a different type of sensor called Radio Occultation Sensor. And the second area where there's a lot of, I guess, commercial potential is really for enterprises and governments, right? Like, so if you're a company, you need to start preparing for your weather risk because it is a real risk for your business. You're an airline. How many flights are going to get canceled if you don't have a good weather good forecast? Or, you know, how much do you need to prepare for de-icing your planes, right? That's just one industry. And think of it in logistics mm. and shipping, supply chain. And, you know, the applications just are, are infinite. And if you look at traditional industries as well, like insurance, you know, the insurance industry has to right. change now, right? So weather, weather data is going to play a very important role. And that's where commercial companies have a long way to go. So the, the other notable announcement I just saw was that Orbital Sidekick publicly shared the first images from its hyperspectral satellites. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that technology and the kind of the use cases there for, for that business? For sure, yeah. I think that is actually a pretty big deal um, because hyperspectral is one of the sensors for which there have been not many commercial satellites that have launched. Actually, I think most of them have launched in the last year or two. Uh, one is from an Indian company called Pixel. Uh, the other one was for a Canadian company called Wyvern. Um, maybe I'm missing out uh, others. But then Orbital Sidekick also launched, I think, two or three of their first satellites. And the big deal is hyperspectral technology allows us to I think I'll explain it in a way that it allows us to zoom in into the properties of an object. So if we see a plant, we won't just see a plant with that image. We will see the chlorophyll content of that plant. Uh, If you just see land, we won't just see land. We will see, I don't know, the soil properties. And you can just extrapolate that for every uh, use case. And I think one of the big applications that they are focusing on is uh, related to emissions from pipelines and, you know, leaks uh, as well or flares. All of that is becoming, of course, you know, in the in the current context with uh, reporting emissions, um, climate change becoming very, very important and interesting. So I think that's one of their biggest uh, target applications. Who would be the potential consumers of that type of data? And they were talking, at least in these initial images, about methane concentration and, and methane leaks, to your point, about emissions. Who do you envision as the, the customers for this kind of data? Yeah, the, the two main customers are the energy companies, the oil and gas companies. Uh, and governments, right? So oil and gas companies, for them to know about their state of emissions so that they can try and reduce. 
And then governments, that's more for from a regulatory standpoint for understanding, you know, where emissions are happening so that if you're thinking about reducing our emissions, they can then, you know, come up with realistic estimates of how much can we really reduce in the next 10 years um, and how much are they actually following, right? Like there's also the policy aspects. Um, I don't think that is picked up just as much, but I think just from oil and gas companies, you know, they also want to reduce, or at least most of them want to reduce, um, you know, their their emissions. And I think the most important thing as well with all of this is transparency, right? Like five years ago, we probably didn't know. You now know that there are these emissions that are happening periodically. I don't know how much of their data is going to be open, but then there are also other open initiatives as well for methane and carbon that are coming up where we're going to have satellites collecting data about the emissions and released openly to to the public. So who are these commercial companies that are moving into the Earth observation market? And who are their customers? Well, to find out more... I spoke to Kate Van Dam from the commercial Earth observation company, SkyFi. She talked us through how the company started and who they're working with. I'm Kate Van Dam. I am the head of strategy and point for Fed at SkyFi. We are the geospatial hub for the world and the place you go for all things Earth observation. We have two co-founders at SkyFi, Bill Perkins, who is, depending on the day, one of your most successful oil and gas traders. At one point, he wanted to just get some satellite imagery and was surprised that it took him six months. Lots of salespeople. It was an extremely cumbersome process. Nobody really wanted to talk to anyone unless they were spending a very large sum. And this just seems kind of crazy in a day that you can buy a house online, you can buy a car online, you can do almost anything online, but it still takes six months to purchase a satellite image. And a lot of that is just dictated by the fact that most of these companies, uh, even in new space, are really incentivized by where the fundings come from, which is, of course, the government. And so uh, Bill met our other co-founder, Luke Fisher, who is our CEO, and SkyFi came about. And really the way that we look at this is satellite imagery should be easy to access. You shouldn't just to even look at it. You shouldn't have to talk to a, a salesperson. You shouldn't have to have a lot of money. You should be able to buy archive image. There are satellites going around all the time. So we really look at it at SkyFi in three verticals. First, we have our standard platform. There, you right now can go on skyfi.com or you can download the app. You can task a satellite. You can purchase satellite imagery. And the cool thing is, is right now it's just satellites, but we have atmospheric balloon partners and we're really looking to integrate anything that takes a picture of Earth. The second portion is open data, right? So those many of your... um, Listeners will be familiar with Sentinel and Landsat, which are, you know, ESA and then the NASA USGS satellites, and that's free, right? Um, Usually 10 meter resolution, but you can still use it for a ton of different things. The problem is open data does not mean accessible data. So if you are a small farmer in Kansas that is curious about open data into some sort of agricultural analytical product, right, to figure out what's your soil moisture content, change detection over time, et cetera, 
she is really going to struggle to even to figure out how to access this unless she's really a geospatial specialist. And this is something that I've found myself even playing with it. So I think in this case, you know, what we're doing is we're integrating open data onto our platform and you can for free pull Sentinel-2 data off. And then the final pillar that we are is insights. And like the way that we look at our platform with all these partnerships, Insights is our analytical platform. And in that case, you're going to be able to, we're, we're partnering with different analytical partners, whether they're indie devs. So any indie developers out there listening to the podcast are very interested in what you can bring to the table or like AI companies, things like this. And so again, going back to our farmer in Kansas, she's interested in what does this soil moisture content look over time? then she can just get online, she can get onto our platform, and she can really pull any of these insights off. So those are really platform, open data insights is how we're looking at bringing really the world more accessible to, to everyone. That's so cool. Um, and you mentioned a number of the partnerships and that you're looking for more. I, I mean, I, I saw the partnerships page. There's a lot of partners that SkyFi is working with. I would love to know, like, what kind of insights, uh, you know, what the value that these partners are bringing, what kind of things you're seeing people doing with these these partnerships. Yeah, it's really cool. So the markets that currently exist, and again, we're big believers in this market isn't even open yet, right? There's a lot of folks out there that don't even know how and when to use uh, Earth observation imagery. But right now, we're working with city planners. You know, you have your real estate. Agriculture, ag is obviously big, but again, that's a, a very large market that hasn't necessarily been accessible unless you are a large ag company mining. And so we have really great relationship with mining company um, and also the regulators, right? And so that's kind of the cool thing is when you're bringing something that is just really it's truth, right? It's imagery and then the analytics added to that, you have that. Then you have finance, so hedge funds and actually some We've been talking some crypto folks, insurance, and then disaster response. And I think the tragedies that we're seeing in Maui and places like this really support how useful even before and after imagery can be, whether it's in the middle of a disaster or in response to one, or even ideally in preparation for it. And then um, also the government, right? So we're really nascent. We're um, actually looking at some cool NATO opportunities, so not just within the U.S., and, and some NGO use cases that really overlap it. We've been talking to some uh, demining a um, NGO coming out of Switzerland that's working on the Kharkiv region of Ukraine. And so there's a lot of these, these use cases that really overlap. So it's not necessarily boutique to industry when you start putting this together as an aggregate. That makes sense. And you mentioned um, sort of areas where it's underutilized. And I'm always fascinated by where people see opportunity for EO to really make an impact that people didn't think of it before. Because even now, some of the markets where it's being used, uh, I think if you had told me five years ago, that's how it'd be used, I'd be like, wow, really? <laughs> that's a, such a cool idea. I never would have thought of that. So I am curious wh where you think uh, more inroads could be made, what other industries could be using it. You know, one of the interesting things that I never even thought about, and again, is, is logistics. And we have a company that's actually using SkyFi data. They're a construction company, but they're like, look, every week we have to take and change how you move around a construction site, right? And so this isn't some big corporation. This is a construction company. And they're like, and we can just pull an image off of your database. And they're like, instead of paying someone to go out with a drone and then map it, we can literally just order and how that in our inbox. And so it's even like what we would, you know, I think what would traditionally be deemed a small use case 
I mean, that could be huge. People are doing construction all over the world. There are, are some really cool conservation efforts, too, that I think can use it. I have a little bit of a bleeding heart, so I love to like figure out, you know, how can we get somebody sitting, you know, an NGO worker, I don't know, an MSF or International Red Cross sitting in Darfur, right, in response to moving logistics in a, in a country with limited infrastructure, basic data literally right to the palm of their hand in order for them to make a decision that is based on updated data and right there. There's no convoluted requirements or anything like that. So I think it's it's in a lot of what we again would deem those small use cases that can make really big impact. And you know, we I always use the example of GPS. Right? 25 years ago, 30 years ago, that was a, really just for government and military use. And now, I mean, I think we're raising an entire generation that is uh may find it challenging to use a paper map, you know? <laughs> that makes you feel very old, but yes. <laughs> right? Me too. Yes. <laughs> but I do think that, I, I hope, and we are betting on it, SkyFi, that we're going to get there with Earth observation imagery too. It blows my mind that in some cases, and actually many cases, it's cheaper and easier to use a satellite than a drone. That's just, I, I'm, that's still just sticking with me a little bit. I'm curious about your thoughts uh, on partnerships with the federal government. I know that it's an area that, that you know NASA and the government is, is saying they want to do better on. Yeah, absolutely. Where we really see ourselves fitting into the federal government or NATO or um, even some of the different space agencies out there is really kind of um, using our platform as that integrator of all the different satellite companies, governments can bring their own, obviously, in that case, onto the platform that would be obviously built for them and also their own insights and analytical tools. So how are Earth observation companies with operations in space compliant with laws that govern how data and information are shared here on Earth. For that, I spoke to the general counsel of Hawkeye 360, Dennis Burnett. Now, Hawkeye 360 are a space-based radio frequency or RF data analytics company, which offers spectrum mapping, and that's a precise mapping of radio frequency emissions. I asked Dennis about the process of the U.S. government regulating their product. We pose a new set of problems for them because it's a new technology. And new technologies always cause a problem for the, uh, for the arms export control uh, regime in the United States because there are a lot of things that are done first in the military sector and the intelligence sector uh, because they're expensive. At first, they are of critical um, importance to the, to the security of, of the United States. And we have an advantage because uh, our government spends a lot of money in developing these kinds of systems. But eventually, you know, all technology evolves and you never can contain it. You can always restrict it, uh, the dissemination of knowledge, um, but you can't control it, right? Eventually, it, it uh, wanders out. And in this case, we've got commercial technologies that get developed that can do things that formerly only could be done with really expensive, exquisite systems. 
sometimes not completely the same, different, but similar enough that it causes some some real policy headaches for the U.S. government. And not only the U.S. government, but but allied governments, uh, governments everywhere. Even, even our enemies have the same problem, right? They have a different way of controlling it than we do, but... Uh, you know that is is it in a in a nutshell. And what we do is um, we gather RF energy from space in uh, satellites that are orbiting in low Earth orbits, about five hundred to six hundred kilometers in altitude. And um, we gather that energy. Um, these are very small satellites using commercial components. They're not very expensive now. To you and I, you know, having a million-dollar satellite is an expensive thing, but when you compare it to what, uh, you know, uh, traditional communication satellites cost and national security satellites, you know, they're more than 100 times as much money. But they also perform, I won't say 100 times better, but a lot better in many respects because they're designed uh, to do different things. So we we launched these uh, using all of the technical innovations that have come about in the last 30 years on small components, the cheaper components, and uh, the availability of launch services that weren't around uh, when I started uh, practicing law uh, 50 years ago. You know, there was only one launch provider in the United States, and that was that was NASA and the Air Force, of course, and DOD. Uh, and Russia, those are the two two countries that could do it, and, and that's not the case anymore. We've got private commercial ventures that can launch small satellites for relatively inexpensive launch uh, prices, and we can put these small satellites up, and we've got currently 21 satellites in orbit, and we have plans to uh, launch as probably by the end of 2024, we'll probably have 30 to 35 satellites in orbit. When a company goes through the process of getting ITAR compliance, what's a lesson that maybe somebody could take away from this if they're trying to make a similar move? Well, yeah, that it is a, it's a difficult process, and there are only a handful of people that really know how to, to work it. Uh, most of them are already in industries. So when you're talking about startups out there, one of the big struggles they have is, well, is what we are doing controlled under the ITAR or not? Are our products ITAR controlled or not? Are they controlled by the under the, the EAR or the ITAR? And EAR means uh, Export Administration Regulations, which are part of the Department of Commerce, and ITAR are International Traffic and Arms Regulations, which are administered by the Department of State. And as you can just tell by the difference in the in the words, they they really... The ITAR is intended to uh, cover items that are of a critical military or intelligence advantage to the United States. This is to protect our troops, to protect our personnel, to protect our interests, right? And over the years, that's, it's easy to do when you say, okay, that's a, um, a cannon or a tank or an F-16 or an artillery piece. Those are easy to identify as um, articles that should be controlled as critical to uh, an advantage of the United States. But when you get into these new things like software in particular and new applications in space, it becomes more difficult because the tradition has been since World War II that everything to do with space was done 
by the military, with the exception of what happened at NASA. And getting it out of that mindset that everything in the space domain is, uh, should be under the ITAR has been very difficult uh, for the government to accept. And so when you have a new company, what do they do? A lot of them make big mistakes, right? You're going to hire somebody like me who's been doing this for, I, you know, I started doing this in 1978 about. Lawyers like me are, are expensive, all right? <laughs> I can tell you that lawyers in law firms are a lot more expensive than I am. <laughs> you know, I, I'm an internal lawyer. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, it's more expensive to not have one, though, <laughs> when things well, go wrong. See, that, see, that's the problem, is that they don't realize that they need that expertise. And if they don't get it, they don't know what they're getting into, quite frankly. So it's, it is a very dangerous area for startups, quite frankly. Some really interesting insights there for new companies looking to get into the satellite world. It's a great reminder that we're really all using space every day, often without realizing it. And we're only just scratching the surface of what the Earth observation market can do for companies, organizations, and individuals around the world. A huge thank you to our guests, Aravind Ravichandran, Kate Van Dam, and Dennis Burnett for sharing their insights and expertise in the subject area. If you're interested in hearing more about the space industry, join me every day for T-Minus Space Daily, available on all major podcast platforms. Find out more at space.nzuk.com. We'd love to know what you think of the show. You can email us at space at nzuk.com. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester. With original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Ivan. Our VP is Brandon Karp, and I'm Maria Varmazes. Thanks for listening.